0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: Um, but I'm also a board member with Variety Children's Charity of Northern California, whose private screening room is where we're sitting uh, Variety's been a great supporter of the program, and they let us have this room. Uh, in exchange, we uh, offer uh, you know cheesy comestibles and liquor out there for you folks, and that helps us raise money for the charity. So we're benefiting a lot of folks uh, by these evenings. Um, so what Variety does is we're a local branch of an international nonprofit that raises funds to put money where it's needed with mm-hmm. as little amount of red tape as possible to help children who are uh, disabled, at risk and disadvantaged and we use that money for a variety of things. Uh, there's more information on the charity out in the uh, lobby as well. And uh, we're delighted that you could all come tonight and welcome to SF and SF. ta
0: well, uh, Rick, do you need a sound check or are we? You sound great. Okay. And, uh, How about me? Uh,
1: you
2: sound
0: excellent. Uh, good. Uh, Welcome to SF&SF. It's great to see you all. Um, What can I say? I'm uh, sort of hosting this show. We've been doing this thing for a couple of years now, and um, our current readers actually was with us once before we read together. Uh, She's a local author, which is uh, uh, a jewel in the crown of science fiction. She is somebody who's really been in the field for quite a while, beginning with the city, not long after, which is actually a novel set in a San Francisco that is under attack from the Central Valley, <laughs> and um, since then she has gone on to write a number of short stories. And right now, the her latest book called *The Wild Girls* is published, I say, with great envy by Viking, and it is about wild girls, I believe. Yes. And. <laughs> <laughs> um, You can tell
2: he writes cover copy.
0: We're dealing with an author here who's never won the Locus Award. And I mention that because she has won everything else. The World Fantasy Award, the Nebula Award, the Asimov's Reader Award, the Sturgeon Award, the Philip K. Dick Award. But you never won the Locus Award. Is that right? I don't think so. Okay. Well, there's no counting for taste. Um, And Pat has a sort of a... Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I've noticed in her work is she sort of uses Victorian tropes against themselves she's written one book called The F- Falling Woman which is uh, um, sort of a, a variation of Fallen Women and she's a member of a a feminist marketing group called the Brazen Hussies, which I guess are the Brazen Hussies still around?
2: Yeah. Lisa Goldstein and Michaela Rosner and I decided to band together and market our books like the Brazen Hussies we'd truly like to be.
0: There you go. <laughs> and so it's about marketing, but it's also, uh, it has a more serious intent, which is about letting people know that science fiction and fantasy are not just about elves and dwarves and robots and rocket ships, as if we'd never heard of wizards or time travel, right? (laughs) So (laughs) without further ado, I would like to welcome a colleague, a good friend, and a writer I much respect and admire, Pat Murphy.
2: Thank you all very much for coming. It's great to be here, and it's Very nice to be in such plush surroundings. I mean, I feel a little out of place here, but uh, I think we could get used to it. Um, What uh, Terry did a great introduction, The Wild Girls is my latest novel, and this is actually one of the things that I've done in my career, which every marketing person will tell you is a really bad idea, is every book I've written has been very different from every other book I've written. Um, standard approach to this if you want to build a following is to write a book once it succeeds then write another one that's kind of pretty much like that one that you just wrote and then write another one that's pretty much like that I guess I have a short attention span or something because each book that I've written has been pretty dramatically different from each other book Um, the latest book uh, is The Wild Girls, which is a children's book or a young adult book. It's sort of in that sweet spot between children's and young adults, So depending on the audience I'm talking to, I call it one or the other. Um, it's been very well received. It got, uh, uh, I seem to be coming up in the world of New York Times reviews because uh, my novel Adventures in Time and Space with Max Merriwell was in the New York Times book review, but it was one of three books in the review. And Wild Girls has now been one of two books in a review. So I'm waiting to be the only book in the review. I'm shooting for that. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's been it's. Uh, I was really uh, pleased that uh, it won the Christopher Award and it won the uh, Northern California Independent Booksellers Award for children's literature this in 2007. So I was totally. Uh, totally blown away by that, but of course, since that's my latest book, I'm not going to read from it. I'm going to read from something completely different. You know, following in the trend. Um, what uh, I'm actually working on a sequel to the Wild Girls, but uh, it's not far enough along where I feel comfortable reading from it yet. So, what I'm going to read from, I decided to take a take a page from uh, Howard Waldrop's. Uh, approach to things and I thought I would write a book write a write a story just in time for the reading well I'm not quite Howard Waldrop so I've written half a story just in time for the reading but uh, it'll give you a flavor of what I'm working on right now I feel a little guilty because this is SF in SF but this is fantasy in SF so oh well but it is in SF there you go. So I guess they'll let me read it anyway. And if we have time at the end of my reading, um, I will uh, teach you to do something that is another book I've just recently completed. When I'm not writing science fiction, I work for Klutz Press, which is a publisher in Palo Alto that uh, many people know uh, as the publisher of Juggling for the Complete Klutz. Anyway, the, the book that I just finished for them is The Book of Card Trickery. So I learned to throw cards. So if we have time at the end, I'll, and I've never thrown cards in public before, so we'll see whether or not I, you know, seize up with uh, fear in front of an audience. But first I'll read, first I'll read, which I know I can manage. So here is the first half of a yet untitled story that I'm working on. I'm on my way to the train station when I find a mirror leaning against a chain link fence across the street from the San Francisco food bank. It's the kind of block where people leave stuff in the street, figuring that someone who wants it will take it away. Usually they're right. Half my apartment is furnished with street finds. I had parked my car in the last empty space on the block, which happened to be right beside the mirror. The mirror is a circle of glass about the size of a dinner plate set in a carved wooden frame that had been painted black and gold in an inexpert effort at antiquing. I peer into the circle. My reflection is silvery gray in the morning light. A ripple in the glass runs through my image so that one eye bulges like Quasimodo and one side of my mouth is warped. It's a little like looking into the porthole of a submarine that someone made with a whittling knife and a lot of wood. I pick the mirror up. If I decide I don't want it, I can always leave it by the fence for the next scavenger. When I put the mirror down in the trunk of my car, I notice that I've cut my finger. A bright smear of blood marks the mirror, and a bead of blood swells on the pad of my index finger. I fish in my pack for a tissue to staunch the flow of blood, then I head for the train station. The first time I went looking for the train station at 22nd Street in Pennsylvania, I passed it three times before I finally saw it. I think of it as a secret train station. It's just a sign and a set of stairs by a little bridge over the train tracks on 22nd Street. Walk down the stairs and you'll find a couple of benches and a ticket machine. That's it. That's the train station. I sit on one of the benches. Far above me, the freeway crosses over 22nd Street and the train tracks, a soaring concrete arc supported by massive white columns on either side of the tracks. Morning sunshine filters through the chain link fence at street level and shines onto my bench. The white support columns rise into the light. The patches of neon bright graffiti that decorate the base of each column glows like stained glass. The place has kind of a post-industrial cathedral look. I watch the swallows that have built nests on the underside of the freeway. It's spring and they're flying to and fro feeding their babies. They don't seem to care that semis and SUVs are thundering over their nests at 70 miles an hour. In the evening when I return, I know I will hear frogs chirping melodically in the stream that runs in the little gully just behind the benches. There's a stream and a tiny marsh where rushes grow. I like this forgotten bit of wildland hidden away beneath the city streets. I work at a toy company in Redwood City. I'm part of the quality control department, and my job is to ensure that products meet safety standards and are age-appropriate today we are having a meeting about fairies among three to six-year-old girls fairies of the tinkerbell gossamer wing variety are a very hot topic little girls want to believe in fairies that's what the marketing guy says anyway he was at the team's first meeting but he hasn't been back since the toy company is creating a line of twinkle fairy dolls That product is behind schedule, so far behind that no one from that team has time to meet with us. Our team is developing an online fairyland that goes with the dolls. Each doll will come with a unique internet code that lets the owner enter the online world. In that world, the doll's owner will have her own fairy home that she can furnish with fairy furniture. She will have a fairy avatar that she can dress with fairy clothes. It's a rather consumer-oriented (laughs) fairyland. Players purchase their furniture and clothes with fairy dollars. Or would that be fairy gold? And if it's fairy gold, will it wither into dead leaves in the light of day? These are questions I do not ask at the meeting. (laughs) The question of the day is, what sort of world do the fairies live in? Is it a forest world where they frolic in leafy, leafy groves and shelter under mushroom caps? Or is it a fairy village with cobblestone streets and thatched huts? Or is it some mixture of the two? Though this choice has no safety implications, I'm happy to stick around and talk about it. (laughs) Why don't we just ask marketing what they want, says Derek, the web designer. The temperature is supposed to top 100 today, but Derek is wearing black jeans, black boots, and a black t-shirt from a Robot Wars competition. (laughs) I've been to four morning meetings with this team, and Derek has been late to every one of them. Rolling in without apology, his eyebrows, right one pierced in three places, lowered in a perpetual scowl. He wants to look surly, but his face is pale and round and soft with baby fat, and he can't quite pull it off. Derek is not happy to be on the ferry project. (laughs) Another team is working on a line of remote control monster trucks. And I think he'd rather be developing an online monster truck world. Tiffany, the project manager, a sweet young thing, sweet young woman in her 20s, shakes her head. We want to be authentic, she says. (laughs) Derek stares at her.
0: Authentic?
2: We're talking about fairies here. In case you don't know, there are no fairies. Tracy, the content developer, steps in. I think Tiffany means we want our fairies to match the child's concept of fairies. We want them to feel authentic. Sherlock Holmes believed in in fairies, says Tiffany. Isn't that what you told me the other day? She looked at me. Not quite. I correct her, trying to be gentle. Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle, the author who wrote Sherlock Holmes, believed in fairies. Back in 1917, two little girls took pictures of the fairies in their garden, and Doyle was certain that the photos were real. What were they, swamp gas? asks Tracy. (laughs) She's a former elementary school teacher. She's interested in pretty much everything. Much simpler than that, I say. About 60 years later, one of the girls, in her 80s by that time, Admitted that she had cut the drawings of fairies out of a book posed the cutouts in the garden with her friend and taken the photos Arthur Conan Doyle was fooled by paper cutouts Tracy is intrigued I shrug people believe what they want to believe Let's stop here for a minute and talk about beliefs for my dissertation in child development I worked with four-year-olds testing what they knew about the world Here's an experiment Show a group of four-year-olds a tall, thin glass and a short, wide glass. Ask them which one will hold more water. The answer will be unanimous, the tall, thin glass. Now, fill the short glass with water and pour that water into the tall glass, demonstrating that the water fills the tall glass to the brim and there is still water left over in the short glass. Ask again which glass holds more. Again, the answer will be unanimous the tall thin glass. Until age five, six, seven, children have an unshakable method for judging volume. If the container is taller, it holds more. Beliefs are tricky. Seeing something doesn't mean you believe it. On the other hand, not seeing something doesn't mean you don't believe it. I don't see why anyone would believe in fairies, Derek says. Who's going to believe in something no one has ever seen? I consider him steadily for a moment. Do you believe in molecules, I ask? Okay. Late that night, I'm sitting at my computer checking my email. I catch a flecker, flicker of movement from the corner of my eye. I turn to see what it was. Nothing is moving. The mirror that I found near the train station is leaning against the far wall of the room. My cat, Flash, stares in the direction of the mirror, his ears forward, his tail twitching. <laughs> Everyone knows that there are things that only cats can see. In my house, Flash is the cat who watches those invisible things. He frequently gives his full attention to a patch of empty air for hours at a time. Godzilla, the other cat, usually can't be bothered with such nonsense. But tonight, Godzilla has taken up a post beside Flash, staring in the same direction at the same emptiness. What's up, guys, I ask them, But they just keep staring in the direction of the mirror, Vigilant. Concerned. They don't trust this mirror. I pick it up and put it on top of the bureau, leaning it against the wall. The cats continue to watch with great suspicion. (laughs) I can sympathize with that. Mirrors are tricky. They pretend to show you the world as you know it, but they don't really. For one thing, they reverse right and left. Wave your right hand and your mirror image waves its left hand. Now a mirror reverses right and left, but it doesn't reverse up and down. Think about that. (laughs) But don't think about it for too long. That way lies madness. I am thinking about mirrors and left and right and up and down when the phone rings. It's Johnny, the owner of the board and care home where my father lives. Whenever I stop by to visit my dad, Johnny tells me how my father has been doing and fills me in on details that I usually don't want to know. I have learned about the need for stool softeners, and socks with no-skid soles, i have discussed the merits of different varieties of walkers one called without irony the "Merry walker though i see very little merry about it my father was once a chemist my father was once a member of mensa my father was once a very smart very sarcastic and somewhat hostile man of all those attributes only the sarcasm and hostility remain a few weeks ago when i was visiting my father Johnny told me that my father had threatened to kick one of the other residents in the balls. He gets very angry, Johnny said. It's the Alzheimer's. I nodded. It wasn't really the Alzheimer's. It was how Dad had always been. Dad did not suffer fools gladly. He considered most people to be fools. And when he met a a fool, he was not above saying, I ought to kick him in the balls. (laughs) Johnny preferred to blame my father's idiosyncrasies on Alzheimer's. Johnny was a sweet guy who chose to believe that people were inherently nice. Who am I to step between a man and his beliefs? (laughs) But tonight, Johnny is facing a challenge. Your father won't stop talking, he says. I can hear my father holding forth in the background. He seems to be delivering a lecture, something about physical chemistry, I believe. He is telling his students that they have to infer the interactions of chemicals by the results in their test tubes. You can't see the molecules. He's been at it for two hours, Johnny says. I've told him it's time for bed, but he won't stop. Johnny sounds very tired. Have you tried telling him the class period is over, I ask. (laughs) No, Johnny says. I hear him speak to my father. Mr. Murphy, class is over. Professor Murphy, I prompt over the phone. It's been at least 50 years since my father was a professor. Professor Murphy, Johnny says, class is over. My father is still talking to his students. Let me speak to him, I tell Johnny. It's your daughter, Johnny says. She needs to talk to you. I hear my father cursing about the interruption. (laughs) Hello, he says crossly. Hey, Dad, class is over. What are you talking about? This is your daughter. I'm calling to tell you that class is over. (laughs) Is it? Well, I was just wrapping up. (laughs) You'd better let the students go, I say, not wanting him to continue wrapping up. Wrapping up could take hours. (laughs) They have to study for finals. They'd better study. His voice is the growl of a demanding instructor. Then a pause. I have to get ready myself, he says, as if suddenly remembering something. Get ready? What for? I'm leaving tomorrow. Several times over the last months, my father of the last few months, my father has mentioned that he is going on a trip. Usually it's to Canada. Sometimes he's not sure where he's going. I've learned not to ask. You can pack in the morning, I say. You'll have time then. Yes, he says, in the morning. In the morning, he will remember none of this. Hello, it's Johnny again. Thanks. I hang up, hoping my father will go to bed peacefully at last. As I turn away from the bureau, I see a flicker of movement in the mirror. When I look again, there's nothing there but the cats, watching reproachfully. You don't have to take the stairs to get to the 22nd Street station. You can make your way directly from 22nd Street to the railroad tracks along a dirt and gravel road that leads down the side of the gully. Just a few steps off 22nd Street, it looks like a country lane. On one side, tall grasses and wild fennel. On the other, a couple of blackberry bushes working their way up to becoming a thicket. That's the way I take today. I have a rolling backpack, but it doesn't roll well on the gravel. Halfway down the slope, it catches a pebble lodged between its plastic wheel and the plastic wheel housing. I squat down to free the wheel. The stone that has stopped my progress isn't just any pebble. In college, I spent a summer at an archeological dig, sifting through Arizona dust to find fragments of broken pots and bits of worked stone in an ancient Anasazi trading post. The stone that falls into my hand when I turn the wheel of my backpack is a very tiny worked flint about a centimeter long. I can see minuscule circles each just a couple of millimeters across where someone has flaked away the stone. Puzzled I put the tiny tool in my pocket. As I do so I catch a movement out of the corner of my eye. A bird I think. I'm getting a little tired of this. I was up too late thinking about dad and his imaginary trip. Just a trick of the eye, a trick of the light, nothing more. I make my way down the hill to the train station, thinking about what might live in the greenery that surrounds me. A few weeks back, I saw raccoons crossing Fell Street near Golden Gate Park, a big bushy mama coon with an extravagantly ringed tail, followed by three youngsters. When mama saw me watching, she turned and gave me such a look. No fear there. She would take me apart, separating limb from limb, then head on over to the 7-Eleven for cigarettes. (laughs) There are coyotes in Golden Gate Park. Biologists think they came from the wildlands just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, crossing the great suspension span late at night. They feed on rats and cats and maybe small yappy dogs, all of which the city has in abundance. (laughs) Foxes and possums live in the cities, wherever a little bit of wildland persists. If there are coons and foxes and coyotes and possums, why not other creatures? small wild living in the gaps in the gullies in the ravines in the half-hidden places underneath tiffany has set the agenda for today's meeting she wants to establish the specifics of our particular fairies tiffany believes in sweet and very commercial fairies Mm -hmm. dressed in pink tulle and glitter they fly on shimmering wings, made of child-safe mylar, I think, <laughs> and are similar to Tinkerbell, but not so similar that they'll trigger a cease and desist order. <laughs> the way I figure it, you can choose what kind of fairy you want to believe in. Tracy's fairies hearken back to the classics. Think Midsummer Night's Dream and Yeats. Her fairies wear elegant green dresses. They have a queen, of course. They have fabulous parties where they dance all night. Tracy lives alone. Derek's fairies sleep late. They are dark-eyed and sultry, dressing in black and looking for trouble. I think some of them are transgender. (laughs) And what of my fairies? I fingered the stone tool in my pocket. In the foggy chill of San Francisco's summer, my fairies wear clothing made of tanned mouse leather. Mm -hmm. They feed on frogs' legs, hunting in the marsh with stone blades. They are grimy, hard scrabble fairies that chip tools from stone and drink from the stream. They'd mug Victorian flower fairies and take all their stuff. <laughs> what do you think, forest or village? Tiffany is polling the meeting, getting each member of the team to vote. Derek says city, Tracy says forest, it's my turn. Wild or civilized? Can't we have it both ways, I ask? Why not? Dirty little fairies crouching in the litter by the stream, chipping stone into knives, strapping blades on, into, onto spear handles made of pencils and pens dropped by commuters. My kind of fairy. <laughs> I'll stop there. That's about halfway done. Right. So uh, I kind of think we should have Carol read, and then if there's time left over, throw cards.
0: No, no, no. The time left over is the uh, time I get to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so do the cards. Okay,
2: okay. This is, and then we'll take a little break? Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then people, can, then people can throw cards if they want. Now, as I said, um, I work at Klutz, and uh, at Klutz I get an opportunity to work on many strange and uh, wacky books. This particular one I was the perfect person to work on because I really can't handle cards at all. So what I had to do was enlist a number of magicians to help me. And then um, they would sort of go, oh, you throw cards by doing this and this and this. And I'd try this and this and this, and the card would fall on the ground. And uh, so I had to sort of go back and break down what you do when you throw cards. And I hope, and this is, this is, uh, um, this is not something I've done in public before. Uh, and it's something. It's a it's a skill that comes and goes. So I will I will demonstrate, and we'll hope it's with me today. So the first thing to keep in mind when you're throwing a card, the most important thing is the spin. Uh, the, I'm holding the card with my finger, my thumb and middle finger on the short end. I can't do this at the mic, and uh, can I? Here. Okay. I'm uh, holding my finger on uh, my thumb and middle finger on the short end of the card. I'm putting my other, uh, my index finger on the corner. And what I'm trying to do is make the card spin like a little helicopter. And the, the key initially is don't try to go for any distance. Just try to go for spin. All I want to do is make it spin really fast. And if it just stays in the same place and just helicopters to the ground, I'm fine with that. So in the book, I get people to just spin the cards for a while. All you're doing is spinning the cards. And then many people will then try to throw the cards. Bad move, doesn't work, <laughs> doesn't work. The minute you try to throw the cards, here, I'll, I'll try to throw it. Oh hey, what do you know? It (laughs) worked. I guess it's with me tonight. Usually if you try to put the effort out, it just goes flop, 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 and it doesn't go anywhere. So what I learned to do is while you're spinning it, you pull your hand back. Rather than putting it out, by pulling it back, you're giving it more forward spin. So, So protect your eyes, those of you in the audience. There is very little control in throwing cards. If you get a card, pick it up, later on at the intermission you can try throwing it. Well, <laughs> oh, see as I said, very little control. But uh, this, is, uh, this is what I do in my day job.
1: <laughs> so
2: in my day job, I spent about uh, four months sitting at my desk uh, learning to spring cards, which I'm not gonna try to demonstrate because usually you know, that's, that's a little harder. Throw cards, do fancy shuffles, and uh, do magic tricks with cards. It's a good day job. And, oh, the toy company bears no resemblance to Klutz. Uh, just, except we did talk about fairies and how popular they are with uh, uh, the four- to six-year-old set. Um, so that's
0: it. Pat, thank you. <laughs> right. I have to say I was a little alarmed when Pat said she was going to read a half of a short story, but that's about the best half of a short story <laughs> I've heard in quite a well, while. And I had put, I, had, I
2: have... The other half is sort of cobbled together but it's not it's not for public consumption yet
0: well we'll all be looking for it yeah uh, Thanks. let's take a very short break and then Carol's gonna read it, and then we're gonna have a discussion about throwing cards and stuff and like other that stuff. very short I just have to go to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> if anyone wants to try sh- throwing cards I've got a, d- a deck of them up here <laughs>